The use of the Emergencies Act was justified, or so says Justice Paul Rouleau, who headed up the Emergencies Act inquiry, or I guess by its proper name, the Public Order Emergency Commission. Hi, I'm Brian Lilly, host of Full Comment Podcast, and this week we're going to examine the issue of civil liberties in Canada, the Emergencies Act. When is it right for governments to lift, infringe, block civil liberties? Do we actually believe in charter rights and civil liberties anymore, or is it just a transactional thing? It depends on whether we agree with how they're being infringed. Our next guest will have many answers on that, but before we get to her, I do want to remind you that you can always subscribe to uh, Full Comment Podcast on any of the devices or apps that you listen on, and please do. We encourage that. Give a subscription, give a thumbs up, like, leave a comment, and of course, spread the word because we're having conversations you probably aren't hearing elsewhere. Kara Zwiebel is the executive director of the Fundamental Freedoms uh, Organization at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. I'm sure I just botched that, Kara, but thank you for taking the time to, no to join us and, and discuss. Um, I, we haven't spoken since the uh, Emergencies Act inquiry came out. What, what was your initial reaction, um, both as a lawyer but as a citizen? when Justice Rouleau released his report? Uh, well, there was certainly a lot of anticipation, um, you know, about about what the report would, would say and do. I think that, um, you know, certainly our impression during the course of the, the commission's hearings was that the commissioner was was troubled or concerned by some of what he was hearing. And, um, and so when the, when the report came out, obviously it's a, it's a long document. Um, you know, it, it's taking time to, to digest all of what's in there. Um, the, the big headline, of course, when it was released was that uh, Commissioner Rulo did find that the, the threshold for invoking the act was met. And that's a conclusion um, with which we at the CCLA disagree. Um, so there, you know, I think is some, some disappointment that that finding was made and that some of the, the arguments that were made by, by some of the parties before the commission um, didn't get more purchase. But, you know, I do, um, you know, trying to be, uh, I guess, more more positive, I do think that the work of the commission was was very important and valuable in terms of giving Canadians, or at least those Canadians who who care to pay attention, um, you know, a really really detailed picture of, of the events that led up to to the protests of the the protests themselves and um, police, you know, police actions and government actions over the course of those few weeks. The I, I, I'm like you. I disagree with the outcome. Um, I disagree with Justice Rouleau's findings. But I'd like your sense of of how you thought he composed himself during the hearings. I thought that even though I disagree with his final outcome, I thought that he was fair during the hearings. I wasn't there. I was watching it a lot. You were there quite often. Um, he did seem to give a good sense uh, or, or a good, a fair hearing to all sides. I, I agree. I mean, I think that, um, you know, he's a, an experienced um, judge he's he's used to considering arguments and um and sort of hearing uh, you know hearing from witnesses assessing credibility i think he um he and the the rest of the, the commission sort of the commission council and staff that were involved in the whole process went to great pains to try to make sure that the process was 
as fair and as transparent as possible. You know, they they did try to um, and, and managed to reach agreements with the government to hand over a lot of things that otherwise governments usually refuse to disclose, including some of the inputs that were before cabinet. Um, and they even went so far as to issue, you know, a subpoena to the the premier of Ontario and the uh, minister Jones, who had been the solicitor general at the time of the, the protest to try to hear their evidence. So I think they, the commission was, um, you know, was was open minded and approached the task with with exactly the right spirit. And, and also, um, you know, a lot of people were saying that uh, the, the way that the terms of reference for the commission were were drafted by the government and uh, the way that the, the mandate of the inquiry is set out in the statute didn't require Commissioner Rouleau to to sort of come to a conclusion about whether the threshold was met. Um, and and he, you know, rejected that, um, which I actually think is appropriate, despite disagreeing with, you know, with the conclusion. I think it was important for for him to, you know, to grapple with the arguments and the evidence that he heard and to to make findings in relation to to all of those issues. I, I remember hearing that argument, uh, especially from supporters of the government, because they didn't want him to say one way or the other, was it appropriate to use? And I, I looked at the order in council and the term set out in there, and it, it specifically said that the commissioner should determine whether it was appropriate. And I thought, <laughs> well, of course, he then he has to say something. You mentioned that he went out of his way to to get documents from the government. And, and, and I will give the, the Trudeau government credit. They did waive cabinet confidences in many areas, not all. But they re- they came up with, or they told the commission towards the end, that they had a legal opinion devised by the Department of Justice that justified their use of the act, and that it was broader than what is in the legislation, but they wouldn't share it. But before we get into how the government justified it, um, do you think that that is wise, acceptable? Um, you know, is it, is it uh, the way yeah. government should act uh, to to say we've got a, a secret legal opinion, but we're not going to tell the commission that's here to decide whether we did the right thing? So, so I mean, ordinarily, you know, the 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 rule um, and the principle that supports a strong protection for solicitor client privilege is, you know, is, is very important. And there are good reasons why we don't, um, you know, we don't want those types of opinions to be disclosed in the ordinary course. But I mean, nothing about the use of the act or what happened last year in, you know, in January and February is, is ordinary. And so I do think in this case, um, there were good reasons to to waive the privilege. Um, I, I also think it was a problem, and I think the commissioner does identify this. It's not just that the government didn't disclose the legal opinion. It's that really their, their sort of legal theory around the justification didn't really crystallize until pretty late in the commission's proceedings. It w- wasn't sort of until the last maybe two weeks or so of, mm-hmm. of the of the witnesses that we we started to hear this idea that um, you know the, the definition of threats to the security of Canada in the Emergencies Act 
meant something different than it meant in the CSIS Act. And and, and even now, I think there's a bit of, you know, murkiness around exactly what the government's theory is. It's We heard from different witnesses, different things. Some said the definition is broader. Others said it's not that it's broader, it's that there's a different decision maker and it, it's made in a different context. So, you know, I still think there's some aspects of that that were were unclear. And the commissioner, I think, does identify this and I think even makes a recommendation around um, the need for the government very early on in the commission process to lay out in much more detail exactly what its justification is. Because when the emergency is is declared, you know, the government has to put forward a justification for parliament to consider. Um, but that's done, you know, under tight time constraints and may not be sort of as as robust or complete as the government would want it to be. Um, before the commission, you know, the there's there's plenty of time for the government to pull that together. And there was really, I think, no reason for these sort of late disclosures of, um, you know, of, of different theories of, of what, you know, what, what the legal opinion said or the, the legal basis on which the government was proceeding. The, the government's arguments that um, the c- definition of, what constitutes a threat to national security in the CSIS Act is is somehow different when brought into the Emergencies Act didn't really wash with me. It, it it's all started to become or sound very muddy. Whereas to me, I, I you know, while I think it's a clumsy way to have written the legislation to say that uh, a national a threat to national security as defined by Section Two of the CSIS Act. So rather than you know putting that in the Emergencies Act, they reference a different act. That Maybe that's a clumsy way of doing it. But to me, it, it, it is fairly clear. And in my view, it was the act was written to make it so that y- you had very strict parameters. The government that passed the Emergencies Act wanted very strict parameters so that it wasn't easy to invoke the Emergencies Act. I, I worry that the way that this has uh, gone about with the invocation and then how the government justified it makes it easier for future governments to invoke the act. I wonder your thoughts on that, Carol. Yeah. I mean, I do share that concern. And I think one of the, you know, one of the concerns around um, the the government's justification and and frankly, even the, the findings in the commission's report is that, you know, it's still fairly um, I'd say, you know, what, what constituted the threats to the security of Canada in these circumstances is fairly um, diffuse for back, lack of a better word. You know, there's, there's a lot of sort of context that's folded in. Um, the commissioner does say that, that economic concerns alone would not be enough to constitute, you know, to, to meet the threshold, but that the economic concerns were an important part of the context here that the government was considering. Um, there, there it, isn't, you know, a, well, a specific I, like to, threat the government I'd, points to. Yeah, I'd like to expand on on that because I felt that towards the end of the last several weeks of the the hearings, that the government wasn't so much making the case for why they were justified as they were making a case for amending the act to include economic considerations like blocking of the ambassador bridge and the economic harm that that would do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think it's, it's right that they were um, 
you know, if not saying that it should be amended, saying that it already did allow for that. I think they were, because certainly the justification that uh, was tabled before Parliament, you know, shortly after the declaration was made, um, spends a lot of time talking about economic concerns and concerns about, you know, Canada's reputation as a reliable trading partner and things like that. And, um, you know, and the government, uh, the council for the government before the commission did, um, did I think take the position that these were were serious threats that they um, you know they did result in in threats to the livelihoods of Canadians and the lives of Canadians um, and and that you know that, that that they met the threshold for those reasons and I, I don't think that's what the act contemplates. Um, I don't think it's what the act should allow for. Um, we did include that in our submissions not only that you know, economic considerations um, don't currently meet the definition, but that the act should not be amended to allow economic considerations to, you know, to justify the use of emergency measures. Um, We have economic ups and downs, even very serious ones all all the time. And governments can use the ordinary democratic process to, you know, to address those. So um, taking the extraordinary step of declaring an emergency and then, you know, governing by executive order um, is not, in our view, justified based on on those types of economic concerns. Um, so, so I, you know, I do think the government was was looking at at different ways and at shoring up, um, you know, their decision. And, and certainly, um, you know, we heard a lot, particularly from uh, from the deputy prime minister before the commission about the economic concerns and what a, you know, what a very significant prominent role those played in, in the government's decision-making and particularly in, in, you know, her thinking around the, the invocation. I agree with you that the government relied too much on, on that and, and that the act doesn't cover it, but I wonder if you could expand for me on, on why you and, and, and the CCLA don't think that economic harm should be a reason to go forward. So, you know, shutting down the ambassador bridge, for example, billion dollars of trade each day. Um, if, if that had gone on, I had been speaking to people in the auto industry saying, well, you know, there's going to be a hundred thousand people on temporary layoff until this is fixed. Um, some people may never get their jobs back. Uh, given those circumstances, why do you say that not only uh, was that not part of the act, but it shouldn't be in the future? You know, I guess it's it's hard to separate out um, the, the the view that that shouldn't be part of the the threshold from from the other view, which is that uh, that we we have adequate legal tools to address these things already. Right? That's another that's another part of the criteria for using the act that we don't really feel was was met in this case. Um, different levels of government, and and for sure there were problems with coordination and. Um, you know, playing nicely with one another, I think that that had a role to play in in the events that took place. But police have tools to deal with these kinds of of protests. I mean, ultimately, the Ambassador Bridge was cleared before the Emergencies Act was invoked um, because there was an injunction was obtained and police uh, engaged in an operation to you know a public order operation to clear the bridge. So, so it, it is hard to separate, I guess, those, those different criteria, but it's partly that, um, 
the, the way in which the particular type of emergency that was used here, a public order emergency, is really about supposed to be about kind of a what I see as sort of an on the ground and much more immediate threat to health and safety than the the more what I would say sort of more remote threats that might come from, you know, um, a breakdown in supply chains or loss of jobs. I mean, you know, many of those other um, consequences were also consequences of the measures that were taken, you know, during the pandemic. And we have a there's a type of emergency under the Emergencies Act that could have been used as a result of the pandemic, um, a public welfare emergency that is, you know, that is dealing with that type of um, threat to, to to health and the need for measures to, to address that. But the public order emergency, which has specific powers that it allows governments to use, um, I don't think is intended for that, that type of problem. We often hear, you know, we consume a lot of American news and there'll, there'll be a bad fire in California. There will be a flood in Ohio. There will, you know, something will happen and you will hear that the governor has declared a state of emergency. Mm-hmm. Now, their law is is very different than ours and, and, you know, their state of emergency is very different than ours. But as Canadians, we we hear that, we consume that, and often when when something big happens here, there are immediate calls for governments to declare a state of emergency because they feel like it means governments doing something. Mm-hmm. Do you do you think that Canadians understand how far-reaching our Emergencies Act is, or did they just want something done? When you hear about you know, how how big a percentage of the population supported it. Do you think they just wanted government to do something to deal with the situation? And, and they don't really understand that it's giving government incredibly sweeping powers and that it, it is suspending civil liberties. Well, I think that, um, you know, there are differences, I, I guess, and even within Canada, I mean, our federal emergency legislation is quite different than the emergency legislation that we have in different provinces and, and territories and, and municipal emergency legislation. And, you know, during the pandemic, I think people got quite used to living under emergency um, emergency powers in different ways. Um, and And actually, in many ways, the federal legislation is superior because it has a lot of really important accountability mechanisms built into it. So um, it has a parliamentary, you know, review process The the houses of parliament have to confirm the state of emergency within, you know, relatively short order and, and they have to confirm the emergency orders that the executive puts in place. Um, and we have this requirement for, you know, for a commission of inquiry, um, the whole thing is subject to judicial review. So there are some really important mechanisms that that don't exist in some of the other emergency legislation that we have and actually that that I think should, you know, and I think I think um, I think looking at some of the commission's recommendations, um, the provinces should really be looking at uh, improving the the accountability pieces in their own emergency legislation. But I think, I think you're right that many um, many Canadians who say they support the use of the Emergencies Act really mean they supported the end of you know the protests and the blockades and and similarly you know the flip side is is and we've we've heard this 
uh, as an organization, the CCLA has heard this from many people, that by opposing the use of the Emergencies Act, we are supporting the, the protests and the protesters. And I've, I've tried very hard to, um, to make the point that, you know, our, um, our focus is really on the actions of the government and whether they are justified and holding the government accountable for that. It's, it's not that we think um, the situation that was happening in, in February of last year, you know, should have been allowed to continue forever. It's that, um, it's that we felt that there were already legal tools that police and governments could use to bring it to an end and that the use of this extraordinary power um, didn't need to come into the picture. So, um, it, so yeah, there I, was very much a tribal reaction to this, wasn't there? Because I, I've received, um, you know, similar claims. Well, you must support the truckers because you oppose the use of the Emergencies Act. No, I just wanted police to clear it away. I don't like governments getting extraordinary powers. But there's this tribal: you're with us or against us, and don't dare check the government view that a lot of people and both sides had it by the way yeah i think i think it's true and i think you know i mean this i think always happens with protests but in this case maybe more than usual you know your view on sort of what is lawful protest and when police should step in depends a lot on on your view of the particular issues that are being protested so um i think also there were there were people who reasonably you know saw how particularly in Ottawa residents and businesses were being affected by the protests and and saw that any pushback against the government was was sort of undermining you know or or discounting the the serious harms that those people were experiencing and um and that's not at all the view you know i think i think police can be just as easily criticized for failing to you know, to protect those individuals um, when they clearly needed protection from some of what was going on. But, um, you know, but again, our focus is really on um, on government action and when we're going to um, accept that these extraordinary types of, of measures can be taken. Um, and it's not just the, the use of the act, right? It's the particular measures that, that are put in place. So, you know, we have under under this declaration, we had a, a situation where banks could basically on their own, you know, of their own volition, um, take a look at your account and decide that they thought you might be someone who was doing something contrary to what the orders said and freeze your assets. Um, there were not a lot of safeguards um, put up around that fairly extraordinary power. There were also restrictions on the freedom to to assemble, and although you know the commissioner ultimately finds that those were were narrow and tailored, I, I think if you look at them, and if you're an ordinary Canadian at the time looking at them, the message was you can't protest right now. Period. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's true that the, the the orders themselves say you know you can't engage in a protest that might give rise to a breach of the peace, but. I I think I would find it hard at that time, at that point in time, to think: Can I participate in a protest and feel confident that it won't result in a breach of the peace? Given you know, given what else is going on, um, so I, I do think that there are real concerns about you know the the breadth of some of those orders and um, and the fact that they were um, and as a result of of being done under emergency legislation, they are necessarily you know put in place 
very quickly uh, without without the time and deliberation and debate that we normally get when we um, when we pass legislation in the ordinary way. Kara, when we come back, I want to ask you your thoughts on whether Canadians actually, you know, support civil liberties or are we transactional in them? Because I I, I get the sense sometimes that we we just uh, support fundamental freedoms if we agree with the issue and don't if we, you know. We'll get into that when we come back. Quick commercial break. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms details the rights and freedoms that we enjoy under our Constitution. And Canadians will tell you that they love the Charter. They support the Charter. That They love their rights and freedoms. But do we really, or is it more transactional? Um, Kara, in your experience working with the uh, Civil Liberties Association, I'm sure you guys get anger, a- angry emails sometimes uh, for various positions you take uh, that even when I don't agree with, the position you've taken, I can say, okay, I, I see where they're coming from. They're defending a fundamental freedom. Do do people like their their rights and freedoms, or do they just like them if they agree with uh, the issue at hand? So, let's say Bill Twenty One in Quebec. It's a hideous piece of legislation in my view, but a lot of people don't like seeing religious symbols, be they uh, turbans, um, kneecaps, uh, yarmulkes, even, and and they say, yep, let's get let's uh, back that because I don't like those. I think there there is you know some um, situational I guess um, um, fans of the of the charter that are you know their their support for different rights does depend on the the particular issue that we're talking about. Um, I think there are others that um, that are more more principled. I would say I, I think also a lot of it does. Um, I think there's a lot of support for rights, but that people do have different ideas about what those rights mean and what they include and more, maybe more significantly about, um, you know, because our charter is not, um, and this was, I think a problem during the the convoy, frankly, you know, people would just say, well, I have the right to protest. It's right there in the charter, the freedom to peacefully assemble. So if I'm not engaging in violence, then I have this right. The charter also says that all of our rights are subject to, you know, reasonable limits. And for better or for worse, reasonable people can disagree about where those reasonable limits land. Um, and I think that that's where a lot of the debate, you know, gets to. And, and many people um, take a, a very a particular view that says, you know, your rights end where mine begin. And I think it's more nuanced than that. I mean, it, it is true that in in exercising rights, we have also responsibilities, and that there's a need to to balance and try to reconcile competing interests and competing rights. But um, it's not as straightforward as you know, my rights ending where yours begin. Sometimes, frankly, my rights will be sacrificed for the benefit of yours, and and vice versa. There's um, there's quite a lot of, of nuance that when, particularly when our courts are looking at rights, um, you know, that they they engage in and have to sort of think through. So I think in, in some in some respects, it's that people just have different different ideas about where to draw those lines. And um, and, well, and, and for many people, they, they have really firm ideas about that. Then let's talk about the right to protest, because I, I heard that repeatedly, that the 
the, the people who were taking part in the convoy were protesting and therefore whatever they were doing, as long as they weren't breaking the law, uh, was fine. But where, where does the, the right to protest uh, go too far? I mean, in my view, I, my answer was, yes, you have the right to protest. It doesn't mean that you have the right to set up a, a permanent campsite uh, on the street in front of Parliament Hill. That 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 is not peaceful protest at that point. That's something else. In my view, if they had gone home every day or gone to a hotel, um, left and come back on a daily basis, they could have shown up every day because there are protests not that size, but I've I've seen that happen in my many years working on Parliament Hill. There were some people who were there for weeks, some for months, some showed up every day that MPs were there. So, where do you? draw the line? What what do you think on that right to protest means I can stay here forever? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't think it means I can stay here forever, or at least not stay here forever in a way that prevents other people from, you know, from accessing the space, right? In this case, we're talking about using these huge vehicles that didn't allow for, you know, for, for other traffic to, to travel through. So, um, so there were, I mean, there were certainly, you know, aspects of the protest right from the outset that were contrary to the law. Um, now, what I would still give a pretty broad sort of scope for even, you know, even some activities that, that do, um, do, you know, brush up against legal prohibitions to, to be allowed to continue as part of the freedom to, to peacefully assemble. But that doesn't mean um, you know, that there, there aren't limits. And I, and I think, um, you know, I can't put a, a, a length of time on it really, um, in the abstract. Um, but certainly I think, you know, the, the, the better scenario for, for what would have happened. And actually there were questions that the commissioner posed to witnesses during the commission that I, that I thought sort of got at this would have been, you know, the, the protest can continue without the vehicles, really, right? The people can be here, they can be expressing their views, pedestrians can, um, you know, can shout their slogans, they can carry signs, they can have their message heard. But, you know, blocking the the access to, um, to the roads, um, the continuous honking in, in a way that, um, you know, was, was, I think, quite damaging for, for people in the area, um, had to stop. I think I think those are you know reasonable restrictions. Um, you know there, there were similar issues that arose. Um, I I can't believe it's been this long, but uh, I guess a little less than ten years ago during the the Occupy movement, right? We had people who were occupying parks and you know basically living there mm-hmm. um, to to protest things, and um, eventually in different cities it got to a point where you know, people said this is space that needs to be shared. It's not, it's not being shared. It's not being used in the way that it's supposed to be used. And courts had to sort of look at and assess whether, you know, how, how to reconcile those rights. And in, in most cases, they decided that basically the protests had gone on long enough. Um, you know, I think those protests were probably easier to justify because they were, um, more confined in area, less disruptive to um, less disruptive to less people than than what was going on in Ottawa, and of course what was also going on at, at the different uh, border crossings. Um, 
but but it's it's very hard to draw these lines sort of in the abstract and and the commission's report also talks about this and sort of says you know it's not it's not to say that uh, disruptive protest is not protected but there are going to be limits that can be placed on these rights uh, and defining the precise contours of those limits is a is a fact specific and context specific kind of exercise which is I know not a very satisfying answer, but but I think is actually the best one that can really be given because it, you know, it does depend a lot on on a whole host of factors that that can vary in different circumstances. See, but you and I just gave two very different answers <laughs> that both gave reasonable solutions to allowing the protest to continue without having to go to, you know, an emergencies act or completely disrupting people's lives. Like you said, you know, we're, we have the rights, but there are reasonable limits set on them. And I, at various times, people on both sides, both the government and the the protest movement, I think were were unreasonable. What's the the police did take a lot of um, criticism in this. Mm-hmm. The Civil Liberties Association has taken issue with a lot of police actions in various cities, um, federally as well, over the years. At what point would it have been acceptable for police to, or how should police have stepped in earlier to avoid going to the act? And I'm interested in hearing that from a civil liberties perspective. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, I actually think, you know, police could have engaged in a public order action like they ultimately did, right? Where they, where they, first of all, give, um, ideally give, clear instructions and information to people that says, you know, we are clearing the streets, you need to leave. If you don't leave, you're at risk of being arrested and, um, and sort of lay out all the consequences, always giving people the opportunity to leave. Um, that was one of the issues, you know, during the the G20 in Toronto that um, re- really people were sort of boxed in. So those that wanted to leave when it became clear that things were, were getting bad, didn't have the opportunity to do so. Um, so I, I think police could have done that, you know, actually fairly early in the process, uh, or in the protests, but they could only do it if they felt it was safe to do it. And I don't think they felt it was safe to do it because they did not have the, the boots on the ground that they needed, right? They, that's what we heard during the commission from so many of the law enforcement witnesses that, um, you know, this was going to be given the scale of these protests, given how many people were there, given the the heavy vehicles and and the need to clear those in a way that was, you know, safe and didn't put people at risk. Um, they needed a lot more resources than they had, and it took the government and the various police services that were involved a long time to to get their act together and coordinate that. Um, I think, you know, once they had that in place, they were, um, they were able to, to execute an action that, that could have been executed much earlier if they'd had those resources, but, but they didn't. And, you know, there are uh, political reasons why uh, different services and different levels of government were reluctant to, to give over um, officers, there were sort of inside police reasons that I don't, you know, still don't fully sort of understand, but just a lot of um, politics that, that went into um, those issues that I think prevented 
the police from from doing what they they legally could have done a lot earlier than than they did. Several of uh, Justice Rouleau's recommendations call for amendments to the Emergencies Act, including getting rid of the reference to Section 2 of the CSIS Act. Uh, my concern there, although in his report he does say that this should not be seen as weakening the act and the the guardrails that you know uh, should prevent governments from overusing it. Um, but I, I do have that worry that it, it it could weaken the act if there's not a strict definition in there. What do you want to see when it comes to amendments? What are you? What would you like to see? What are your concerns about how the act's written now? Um, what Justice Rouleau's recommending? I mean, most of the the things that I think the act um, should be amended to to do are are ways that would. Um, sort of enhance or beef up the the accountability side of things. And Justice Rouleau makes a number of recommendations about that, including, you know, some issues around, um, first of all, giving the commission longer, a longer period of time to do its work if necessary. Um, Also making sure that government doesn't really have the option of shielding a lot of what it could have shielded from, from scrutiny, you know, so making sure that um, cabinet confidence over, uh, the inputs that cabinet reviewed is is always going to be something that the commission can consider and it doesn't just depend on sort of the goodwill of the government of the day waiving that that confidentiality. Um, I think those are really important recommendations that I hope will be taken up. Um, I'm not convinced that the the legal thresholds should change. I'm concerned of course that they're that they're being watered down by the, the sort of interpretation that they've been given uh, by the commission's report, um, you know, the, the CSIS Act definition is, I, I mean, it's old and there were certainly, um, you know, comments made from different witnesses about the need to sort of modernize it. Um, it, it's hard. It's hard to come up with the words that, you know, capture exactly what you want to capture and don't capture any of what you don't want to capture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very difficult exercise. So, um, you know, part of the reason that that I think we we saw the benefits of tying the definition to the CSIS Act is that it is known to be a high threshold, uh, you know, a hard sort of bar to meet, and that it should be for for both the CSIS Act and and what those powers are used for, and the Emergencies Act, um, particularly the the ability to declare a public order emergency. Um, so I, I think. I'm, I'm not convinced that there's a good reason to, um, you know, to change that definition and, and anything that was proposed, I think we'd have to, you know, sort of look at very carefully and try to think through the, the implications of, uh, of exactly what it, you know, what it would mean and what it could look like. Karen Zwiebel, thank you very much for your time. And thank you to the CCLA for all the work that, uh, that you did at the inquiry. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Brian Lilly, your host. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. And remember, you can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Amazon Music. You can listen on your Alexa-enabled devices. And please make sure you leave a rating or a review. Tell your friends about us. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Brian Lilly.